Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Sex, Psychics, and Psychedelics. Discovering Inner Liberation. My name is Banana Jane Garnett. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, a lover of freedom, and a relentless explorer of the mind. Please come join me on my journey in hot pursuit of inner illumination and liberation. For more about me, you can find me at the Banana Jane on Instagram. Now let's dive in. My next guest is the brilliant Tiu Dehan. Tiu is a ritual designer, a creative facilitator, and an idea doula. Tiu is devoted to the creation of experiences that connect us to ourselves, to each other, and to our own creativity. She's here with me today to talk about ritual design and making meaning out of ritual. This is something she's incredibly experienced in, and I can't wait to dive in. One thing I was thinking about is, okay, you don't work with psychedelics, but... No, I don't, but I have been termed psychedelic adjacent because I definitely work with the shift of consciousness that is akin to psychedelics. And so even though I don't work with psychedelics, I have done quite a lot of work in realms that are right next to that. And also with projects that do both work with psychedelics and without. So I, the space that psychedelics opens up is the space that I'm interested in. I certainly had a sense we were on a, a similar overall uh, path. And yeah, to me, sex psychics and psychedelics are all about kind of opening up boxes of, of consciousness and um, finding ways to transform thinking and feeling. And I know that you do that also in many ways. And one of these ways is ritual and ritual design, which is what I really want to dive into. But since we started talking about psychedelics, I know you have a really interesting kind of like psychedelic adjacent project that involves VR. Can you just tell us about that for a second? Absolutely. Yes, of course. So there's a... Um... There is a very pleasingly named psychonaut and scientist whose name is Dr. David Glowacki. And as if by magic, his name led him in the direction of um, wacky light work. He is the founder of something called the IRL or Intangible Realities Laboratory. He used to be a professor of chemistry at Bristol University. He brought me in just pre-pandemic to collaborate on this absolutely, truly extraordinary VR experience where everybody present becomes light bodies and plays with a, a, a scientifically accurate molecular structure. I have to stop you there. What's a light body for those people who might not know? Oh, literally imagine that instead of seeing my outline, that my outline were made of light. So imagine a roughly humanoid shape, but made out of a cloud that is light. And then imagine that at the center of the chest, roughly speaking, in that amorphous blobby shape of light, there is a bright light like a little sun. And then imagine that where your hands are, there are bright lights about the size of ping pong balls. And you inhabit this virtual space where everybody in that arena all looks the same and they might be sitting in different parts of the world. So it feels very much like you're actually sitting in circle with people. 
because you can hear them and you can speak and the voices give this oddly vivid sense of proximity even though you're not that so we could do it sitting in a circle you go i'm in la i'm in london i'm in seattle i'm in lisbon i'm wherever but you feel like you're right there with each other and then in this experience there's a guided meditation which i help to create and write and voice where you're basically invited to explore the edge between science and spirituality where scientific data proves that we have this energetic form and yet spirituality also leads you towards that direction and here is an experience made by a scientist where you get to actually see what you really look like and then while you're in that zone you get this molecular structure that appears that's utterly beautiful that's like this sort of vividly alive string of it's like imagine seaweed that's made of light and it's and it's moving and you can grab it and hold it and move it around and 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 it takes you through the sequence of various different stages where everybody gets to play with the matter that life is made up of. And when we piloted it, we ran it a bunch of times in quick succession and we got people who completed it to fill in a questionnaire afterwards. And one of the things in the questionnaire was a bunch of questions around the mystical aspect of the experience. And the questions which were used in, in that particular kind of data grab were taken from the psychedelic research that's being done at Imperial College in London, where they compare and contrast the mystical impact of various different psychedelic drugs. And then we rated our thing on the same scales. And it turns out we outperform LSD. <laughs> <laughs> like by quite some measure. Oh, big claim, big claim. I know, oh, I know, God. I know. And then so this paper was written about this saying, the title, oh, by the way, I named, I named this experience through a somewhat shamanic process, actually. There's a, there's a process I use with my own work, but also other people's, where there's a meditation where you get to meet the spirit of a project and you get to ask it questions. And I did this meditation with a team. And during it, one of the questions is, what would you like me to call you? And this entity said, isness. And so I came out of the meditation and I said, um, I think it wants to be called isness. And they were like, Isness it is. So isness is what it's called, or that particular experience is what it's called. And a paper was written as a result of that whole thing about the comparable between VR and psychedelics. And that blew up. And now it's with this company called Anuma, and they're working with people who are near end of life. They're doing this really interesting pilot where they're working with people who can't be with their loved ones, but can be taken through a process of releasing and connecting. It's quite powerful stuff. Yeah, if you if you get access to a, a Quest Two headset, I can meet you in there as a light blog, and we can play with. I, I would, fun. I would absolutely love to do that. And actually, the um, this last piece you were talking about feels like a a kind of uh, tech version of mediumship, which is pretty interesting. So another another alignment, right, between um, your work and mine. So very amazing stuff, and. And I have so much to ask you about because you have so many interesting projects. I know both on the go and, and, you know, historically, but let's, let's hone in on ritual for a second. I, I think my first question is what got you into ritual design? And I would like you to cast your mind back, meaning like, you know, where were these first seeds planted around ritual in, in your psyche and the importance of it? Hmm. I had a very mystical mother who was very good at making life itself a creative act and who was a spiritual seeker 
And so there was a certain, it wasn't called ritual, but it was our lives were definitely peppered with moments of profundity and sacredness and pausing and appreciating. And he would do all sorts of things, including tell me I didn't have to go to school and like, let's just have an adventure instead. But like lots of things that would kind of subvert. She loved blowing my mind. Remember her saying that to me once? She was like, I love nothing more than blowing your mind. (laughs) That's so funny. I love that. I think my mom was the same. She didn't admit it. But but yeah, that's so beautiful. Give me an example of like one of these moments where she would sort of pause and show you something amazing about life. Well, I mean, I remember one night she came into my bedroom and it was probably after 10. And she said, you have to, you have to get out of bed. <laughs> you have to see this. And she'd made us a midnight feast. And it was when Michael Jackson was receiving awards at the MTV Awards. And I remember watching, and my life changed. Like I fell in love with Michael Jackson, which obviously nowadays feels like a very weird thing to say, but she, she got the magic of him. And she was like, we stayed up all, basically all night watching this thing. My, my whole, I then became a super fan and was allowed to skip school. And this is Michael Jackson centric story. Was allowed to skip school and stand outside his hotel room. He came to London to unveil his statue at Magnum Tussauds. Maybe not the best example. She would do things like she gave me permission in my bedroom to write graffiti all over the walls. So I had I had complete permission to cover everything with complete freedom. And she would also do things like she would just say, I think we need to go to feed the ducks today. I don't think you should be going to school. I think we should do something more interesting. And that would happen quite often. And everything kind of even the details, like she had a very sensitive smell, so sense of smell. So she would just sort of do things like make things that smelled nice just to waft them about the house like she'd have a saucepan of clementines and clothes and she'd just walk around the house with it and and she like she would clean the floor by getting me to lie on a rug and then pull me along and get me to polish the floor she just made normal life beautiful playful but she Mm. was also an avid spiritual seeker and she took me along to things and so I went to Sufi dance every Sunday and I meditated every day you know I had a cassette of kundalini meditation i was six i put it on in my bedroom and i'd do my meditation every day that was normalized there was a kind of there was an an access point to this other way of bringing these practices into the everyday which meant that i grew up feeling like that's what one did but of course it isn't (laughs) where anybody else did so way back to that kind of level of childhood there was this sort of imbuing of sacredness and curiosity and spirituality it wasn't overtly ritual ritual probably wasn't a word that was banded about but the practice of making moments special I mean I just remember coming home from I was at boarding school briefly in the sixth form I coming home and she would just like have left treasure notes all over the house for me or like left left chocolates on the pillow and then left something under a, a thing and I'd have to kind of hunt around you know that kind of just everything had that quality of delight and mm. so then to then add in a, a, a much bigger layer of meaning to that she then died very suddenly when I was 18 which is a story I won't go into right now it's I did a TEDx talk about it about other things but about that being the kind of the game-changing story and then as I learned to heal from that which took quite ages but as I learned to even begin to feel to unlearn the very cerebral education that you and I both had and begin to encounter a more emotionally open, more heart-centered, more spiritually curious Look, you education. made me cry with it, your the pillow story. It's so Aww. sweet. <laughs> it's like, You're so nice. Good. Success. <laughs> Don't make you cry and we're winning. 
as I then kind yeah. of encountered how to begin to feel, how to begin to cherish the wisdom of my own heart, how to feel grief, all the things that we were not taught to feel, I started to explore ritual as a path to making moments sacred, to healing, to demarcating times when I could dedicate myself to the bigger questions and also honestly to things that are unseen, things that aren't necessarily, I don't mean, I mean, I'm really curious when you say tech mediumship is akin. I don't, I don't know that I know that about your work. If you're a me, are you a medium? No, I'm not a medium, but I'm very interested in all things psychic and I speak to psychics and mediums. Right. And yeah, I'm interested in how tech can get us into these other worlds as well. So yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so I think I think death opened up my proximity to other layers of understanding and also feeling like my dead aren't really that far away. And therefore, if they're not so far away, then what other realms do I kind of have access to that coexist with? I don't think I am a psychic exactly, but I have a very strong intuitive sense of things that exist outside of this like apparent solid reality. Yeah, you could probably call yourself a psychic. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a dicey term, but I, I would imagine you could, you could probably qualify if we gave you the quiz. I mean, I think about psychic as somebody who, to me, my, why I love psychics is because they think in a completely out of the box way. And I feel like the result of speaking to psychics is a sort of harnessing of the power of the imagination and the sense of possibility. And it seems to me that in a psychic reading, you're making space for possibility. In a ritual, you're making space for possibility. Is that right? Or is it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that analogy. There's a quote which I use in almost everything I do, which is very much speaks to this point, which is from a book conveniently titled The Art of Possibility by Rosamond and Benjamin Zander. And the quote goes like this. It goes, um, in a universe of measurement, we set a goal and strive to achieve it. In a universe of possibility, we create a context and let life unfold. Now, both are actually necessary, but most of our time and their energy is spent on the former. And a ritual is, is really the art of the context creation that allows life to unfold. So there's a metaphor I use, which I, we, if anybody has watched the TED Talk, it's repeated in there, but I'm just going to say it because it's helpful, which is, if you want to understand the way to see a ritual, it's a little bit like shifting your perspective of what creativity is from a painting or a book or a movie or a meal and transferring that kind of content, like something that is really delineated and, and created by an artist and understanding that it exists within a frame. So for example, with a painting, you look on the wall and you can see that there's an edge around it that tells you that the wall has been painted by any old person and the painting has been painted by an artist. A book, the covers delineate it, a movie, the credits, you know, everything has a kind of container around it. But for the painting analogy, so you imagine that you take the painting off the wall and you make the frame invisible and the contents become not a visual only medium, but also sound, silence, tastes, scents, colors, words, music, intention emotion that's the key thing like how what are the emotions that all of those things are going to be 
encouraged and felt as a result of filling it with this particular concoction of sensory elements. And then you give it a very clear beginning and an end. It doesn't trickle into every minute of the day. It has a distinct specialness, the context, if you like, but within it, you're letting life unfold. I mean, you might contain it and control it, but you're still making something that is going to have perhaps more emotion or intention. Some invisible amorphous things are going to be contained within that container. That's how I explain ritual. And that's what that, that quote, I love that quote because it's a little bit like having a child. I've never been pregnant, but I'm imagining that being pregnant is a similar thing. It's like you go, I'm going to nothing. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to wait, but I'm going to take care of the container. I'm going to make sure that I'm eating right and being calm and doing whatever I can to allow the being inside to become itself. The same principle. Yes. You're, you're a guardian of, of this space of, of possibility. It makes me think about your, your frame. You're putting a frame around something, a, a space of possibility. Some things obviously have their own innate frames, right? Like a, a pregnancy, you don't necessarily know when, when the end of the frame is. But, but you know, um, and then some, I guess, yeah, with most rituals, I suppose we're making that. I know that you take umbrage with this idea of, you know, like, oh, my coffee is, you know, my, my morning coffee is a ritual. And you saying, no, 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 that's a, that's a habit. It's not a ritual. Now, I have to get into this with you on a personal level because I need to talk about my morning coffee with you. So here's the thing. I would argue my... <laughs> just don't take away my coffee, okay? Just, just, don't, just don't... Just don't... That is not even gonna... We're not even gonna think about that right now. So here's the thing. I... <laughs> I, knew this I'm not, I would never I know, fight I, a woman over her coffee. I, I, and I, I wouldn't I, expect, I, I would to the death. If you, see, if you hear any defensiveness in this, is uh, it's just your imagination. It's <laughs> your imagination. <laughs> totally. So, okay, here's the thing. All right. It can be a ritual, but yeah. Okay. Oh, thank on. you. Okay. Well, maybe you've answered my question, but basically. We need to unpack and see if it is or isn't. But yeah, yes, yeah let's on. see. Okay. So here's the thing. I'm going to try and just be really honest about this. Mm-hmm. Aside from the fact, obviously, that I love my coffee and I make it a really creamy latte that sort of doubles as breakfast. I, it's sacred time for me because I make this coffee and I make sure I have time to do this before I get into like kid world, taking my kids to school or, or any other world. I get my coffee. I take it back to bed. But I love bed and I'm like, I'm going to allow myself to love bed. So I take my coffee and I sit in my bed and I open my curtains so I can see. Luckily, I have trees outside my window. So I can look at green, drink coffee and feel snugly in bed. And that is just something I really, really love. And it's, it's sacred time. And I don't know what to say, except that I just don't feel comfortable just saying that it's a habit. <laughs> just don't, so so I, don't I have know. a question for you. Yeah. As well as being snuggly and looking out the window. Yeah. Are you doing, what else are you, are you doing anything else? Are you on your phone? I would, you, no, 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 no. I mean, no. I would say I would title it allowing. So it goes a bit deeper in the sense that I'm someone who always feels my my default setting is to feel like I should be doing more and to feel a bit guilty about the spaces in life where I go more sort of passive. And so this is kind of a, this is a sort of deliberate allowing of that. It's like, no, we're going to make space for that because this is actually one of the things you really want to do. I think that qualifies as a ritual. Yes! <laughs> you get the gold star 
from the profession. <laughs> so the reason why I'm saying that is there's a definition which I was told by one of my teachers, Sabonfu Some, who is the keeper of the ritual of the Dagara tribe of West Africa. She's dead now, but she was amazing. And she said, ritual is to the soul as food and drink is to the body. It nourishes a part of us that nothing else can. So if it is nourishing your soul, instantly it's elevated to something above a habit. If you were lying in bed and all you were doing was scrolling through the news headlines or fighting with your ex or something, or like just getting stressed, it wouldn't qualify. But because what you're allow because you use the word allowing, because you're making space for something bigger than you for a kind of a context honoring or something. That's yeah. not quite what I mean. It basically it has to leave it has to leave this mundane reality and invoke or invite a bigger context in order for it to be a ritual. And the and the misuse that I take umbrage at or with is when people conflate routine behavior that they become addicted to, but that in itself becomes turned a ritual when actually it's just a routine. So yeah, it's the yeah, difference yeah. between wine o'clock at the end of the working day and taking communion in a church, which if you're Christian, you believe the wine has been elevated to represent, not only represent, but like embody something completely extraordinary. I'm not a Christian, so I haven't ever had that experience, but that's the difference. It's still something that happens at the same time, but the, but the shift from I'm going to open a bottle of wine and watch a soap opera to yeah. hang on, this wine has just been turned into the blood of somebody. That's the difference. Or it's like the difference, the one I, the, the way I used to, I generally explain it is the difference between going for a hike and going on a pilgrimage. A hike looks exactly the same from the outside. And it could be really fulfilling to go on a hike. You could be going for a walk in a beautiful place with best friends, but a pilgrimage, even if it's not about the destination, a pilgrimage contains something deeper and bigger than you yeah it's it's much juicier and it's intrinsically expansive i do think the addiction side of this is interesting i mean i i would say that my relationship with coffee is is both so i think that i appreciate you allowing me that that is a ritual and i agree but i do think it's quite interesting to think about to to kind of bridge these two ideas what is that addiction about? Not just like, oh, I, it's bad that I'm addicted to this thing, which is, I think, where, you know, it's very easy to go to. But, but what, is the, what is the medicine inside the addiction that I'm craving, which in itself could lead to a greater understanding of what's up with you? And then maybe you could turn your addiction into something a bit more ritualistic where you're acknowledging I'm looking for something. I need something. Mm. I want something. You know, it's funny. I was reading a book yesterday, very unlike me, because I have a phone addiction. That means that even though I once upon a time read books all the time, I never do. Yesterday, I turned my phone off for several hours, which was amazing. And I picked up an actual book. And this actual book contained this really interesting idea, which is that our, and I don't know that I fully agree with it, but I like it to what you're saying. It's a mystical book, and it's basically one of the things it said is our desires are not necessarily bad. They are where the gods walk alongside us. And I was like, oh, he basically talked about the fact that he wanted to witness his own addiction. So he had a craving for a particular cake. 
I was living in Cambridge at the time and he goes to this cake shop and while he's in the queue for the cake shop, he suddenly gets an addiction. He gets a nudge for another cake <laughs> around the corner and he's just doing it as an exercise. He's deciding to follow every desire. So he's going, okay, this apricot cake suddenly isn't cutting it. I now need to get on a train and go to London to go to this place to get this cake. And he does, like he follows. And while he's at the counter for the next one, a third cake. This is, a, this is a very intelligent man. I need to He's read this a book. Very, very intelligent man. And he then turns it into this awakening that suddenly the, the desire for, by, by the third cake shop cue, <laughs> the desire suddenly flips into this lesson about, and I, I need to dig out the page to, to tell you exactly what the wording is, but he basically has this moment. He walks alongside deities, this character anyway, and he has this moment where he says, the deities are telling me that actually desire is where they appear. And I suddenly thought that's a really interesting thing. I mean, obviously, yeah, I'm not, I think both, you know, when I was saying before, you set a goal to strive, strive to achieve it. You create a context and let life unfold. I'm not morally bound to simply sitting back and letting things happen. I quite like active, energetic, awakening desire and following it and pursuing it, even though I know that it's problematic to think that that's going to bring you peace or joy or something. But I'm still, I'm of the, I've done quite a lot of different, of both paths, spiritually speaking. I've done quite a lot of the kind of just sit back and be and quite a lot of the kind of have massive adventures and see what comes. And I like, I like both. And I felt, I just felt like that addiction maybe is a, a, a housing around something that has a positive intent, which is aliveness or connection or desire flo flowing through you towards something that may not be entirely bad. I don't know. I, don't I know agree. I mean, I, yeah. I feel like the, the sacred is inside. It's sort of like endemic to desire and desire is problematic. I mean, it's tricky. Duh. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> look around um yeah it's tricky it's tricky exactly it's a, it's you could say it's a sacred navigation and uh, i mean i think but it's not wrong to feel desire and i feel like no. that's often when you come from a spiritual background which mm, i do the asceticism do. of it yeah 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 there's something i there's some i had a boyfriend years ago when i was doing quite a lot of quite hardcore personal development in a particularly kind of active way he was going into full asceticism and we didn't really understand. We did kind of both like each other's approach, but it was so different. I remember he had a, we lived together and I was going off doing impossible things, <laughs> like literally like going on courses where you had to do something impossible in 24 hours and you had to pick something that was so outside of the realm of possibility. You had to like, it was, and in the meantime, he was, we had a book by the loo in the bathroom that was just called Who Cares <laughs> by his, by his gurus. He was like, eh. And we, it was such an interesting juxtaposition. And I was like, I get it. I understand that there's a high truth in, in releasing all attachment, but we're human. And in this skin suit, I like being human. It's definitely not what you want in a boyfriend. It's reminding me of actually a boyfriend from Oxford. I know you probably know him, but I'm not going to mention his name. <laughs> Super hot guy. I was so stoked to have this boyfriend. Halfway through our relationship, he gets really into Chinese medicine. He's like, I'm, I'm expending too much tea on you. I need to dial back. We should stop having so much sex. I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> I 
was like, you could stop having, I mean, you don't have to have so many orgasms. What about <laughs> no, I can't. I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm not interested in all that stuff. Oh it's my so God. So funny. So annoying. So I want to get kind of closer to some of these rituals because they're so, so beautiful. A personal ritual. Can you give us an example of a personal ritual that you're working on now or that's been important to you? Sure. Um, so I'll tell you one I'm in early stages of working with and I haven't yet figured it out fully. But So I'm now the age my mother was when she died, which is 49, <sighs> which is quite weird. And I haven't had children. And I had my eggs frozen. 10 years ago. And I never thought I'd still be single 10 years later. So I'm at this weird choice point where technically I could still have children, but I don't have a partner and I don't want to be a single mother. And I don't know that I want to be a mother at all, but I haven't done anything about it because I've had these frozen eggs to kind of wedge open the door. And I turn 50 next year. And when I turn 50, it'll be the first time that I'm older than my mother ever was. And so I am working with, I realize this is grief, like quite big grief for me to, to somehow let go of the path that I thought I wanted to go down or that I would go down and it just somehow hasn't happened. And so I have a, I'm working with somebody else because it's too big for me to hold emotionally. This absolutely wonderful woman who you should speak to actually, Isla McLeod ah. is, oh, She's a witch. Yes, I've heard of her. Yeah. She's so wonderful. She's so wonderful. She's much more kind of, if I kind of wear a white shirt and live in a city and go and work with CEOs, she kind of disappears into the wilderness and bleeds onto the earth. I mean, I don't know that she literally bleeds onto the earth. That's unfair, but she's more like, she's moon and I'm sun, but we're still, we're part of the same work. So she and I are working together. And basically on the night of my, the night before the last night of being 49 into my the morning of being 50 I'm going to do an all-night ceremony with her that I think is going to be a birthing and I think it may and I don't know yet it may entail letting go of those frozen eggs and I don't know yet if I'm going to do that because that instantly is quite painful for me because it instantly feels like a shutting down of something but while they're there there's something leaking. Yeah. And they need to either be used or be grieved. So I need help with that. So this is something which there's a lot of women who haven't had kids and who are going through a sort of awakening going, there's a lot of really good things about not having had kids, but there's also this painful path of missing that whole piece. So that's something which I'm working on. It's, it's very, so that's a very personal one, like the grief of, of not being a mother. Unless I suddenly become a mother in the next six months, which I guess is possible, but it, it would, yeah, or maybe there's a, of, yeah. a a redefinition of of what mother means. I mean, you're yeah. you're really tackling that archetype there in a in a major and multi dimensional way. And thank you so much for for sharing that personal story. And it's beautiful to hear this ritual kind of in its gestation phases. I know we're going to go on and talk to ones that have been, you know, kind of completed and delivered and actualized. And, and this is a great kind of window into, and for anyone listening, you know, there are, there are so many kind of internal thresholds that we kind of carry that we could either shy away from or we could actually walk through. And 
nobody else knows our inner landscape the way that we do. And I love the idea of being a kind of really empowering ourselves to honor our inner landscape and to honor these places where we might be leaking possibility. You know, the, the idea of of freezing eggs is so wonderful in the sense, of course, of being able to harness yourself with that with that possibility, provide yourself with that possibility. But at the same time, the the hanging on to a possibility could also be a leaking draining of energy. So, so to be able to set ourselves up for success by saying there's going to be this ritual, and and I love what you're doing is this sort of intentionality. You know, yes, you can have a feeling that there's something powerful on the other side, but you can also say that, and that makes it even stronger. You know, there will be something on the other side of this ritual. I will be coming out in a different space. I will be evolving. And this is something we can all do. We can all set ourselves up for these kinds of successes. I mean, it's very, very cool if you think about it. And I know you do think about it. Um, so, so yeah, I really appreciate that to you. And, and tell me about something else, you know, another kind of ritual that you've done for someone else that has helped them kind of transition in, in some sure. way. Um, so, but yes, just to come, you're absolutely every word of what you just said. We have these thresholds and we all have them. And there's not usually an external structure that allows you to fully make them your own and to shift from one to the other. And that's what I do. I, I, I do it for myself and I do it for others. And I hopefully inspire people to come up with their own, you know, because once you realize that you need it and that it is possible, then you can make, you can do your own thing or I can help. But, you know, there are, there are ways of, we basically need more transitions to be honest than we actually have space for in our days and in our lives and in, in the external, say, religious structures that we might use to find peace or emotional intelligence or whatever. They're often, they are dictated by the nature of the religion as opposed to being bespoke. And so it's the bespoke thing. So yeah, so I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, an example or two. Some friends of mine in New York, um, New Yorker, couple and their baby and I was there when their baby was six months old he's now seven years old or something so it was a while ago and they had heard of a Balinese tradition which you may or may not be aware of because it's mentioned in Eat Pray Love actually which is where in Bali they don't put the baby down at all for the first six months of the baby's life and this is because of the belief that the baby is still transitioning into physical form from the spirit world. And it's not until it's landed on the earth that it's fully embodied. And so when that moment comes, which is at six months, there's a whole thing. And in Bali, they, the baby's feet are made wet and then their little footprints are put on the earth for the first time. The tree is planted. And so they had decided they wanted to do this for their baby. So they didn't put the kid down, <laughs> at least... They didn't put him on the earth. They yeah. put him on the apartment floor and he could crawl around and stuff, but he was never, he never touched earth. And they were going to go to Bali to do this. And I'm like, guys, you're New Yorkers. You should do something in New York, shouldn't you? Like he should land here. He's yeah. truly a New Yorker. So they're like, oh yeah, okay. I was like, I'm a ritual designer. We can work with what we've got. So as it happened, there was a bench, which was a memorial bench for the brother of, my, of the mum of this kid. So my friend's brother had died many years earlier and they had a memorial bench in Central Park. And so that was to be the location. You can't do too much that's naughty in Central Park. Like you can't plant trees and stuff. 
are really powerful because they kind of anchor a certain moment of, it's like, you know, there's that pause at the end of the in-breath before it becomes the out-breath. And there's a pause at the end of the out-breath before it comes. It's that, it's like the, and now, and it's like to extrapolate out from there. So to find a, a, a pivot point and make that a moment where you get to, to turn it into something more creative, that's one option. So you could have, yeah, you could, you can use the principle of a time limit. So, so you design the frame. So you go, why does this need ritualizing, first of all? So what is it about this that is lacking intentionality or meaning or depth or richness? And if so, what would it then, how would it change? How would it benefit it to bring in a bit more meaning? So, um, for example, your daily shower. This isn't such a great, I, I can give you a richer example, actually, but it just will run with that. So your shower, there's there's a ritual which I didn't make up. So Bonfu Some, who is the one I mentioned before, the keeper of the ritual of the Dagara tribe, gave me a very distilled version of a grief ritual, which is if you have any emotions that you're carrying, which we all do, but if grief in particular is one, take a bowl of salt water into your shower. And while you're showering, speak, emote, cry, wail, all of it into the bowl of water. Just let it be for five minutes, 10 minutes. And then when you're done, pour the water away. Dead simple. Like you suddenly, your shower becomes not just the time to wash yourself, but it's a time to release everything. So that's a very simple example of turning a shower mm. into like, why do you need that ritual? Well, because you have unexpressed grief that the world doesn't really give you space to feel or your family set up or like the kids or the job, or all the things. Mm, mm. And I love the bowl as well. I mean, because you could just say, oh, I'm just going to like wash off my grief right now in the shower. I mean, which is a start, but, um, but, but the bowl again is a sort of image of, of containment seems really helpful and makes me think of you know the containment of the the therapy session or the containment yeah. of the the beginning and the end of a ritual um as you were talking i was also thinking about uh, my my past marriage and how we would have trouble with transitions particularly you know like coming back from work you know sort of re-entry into our life as a couple and i remember learning you know, the best thing we ever learned in couples therapy was basically give each other a hug on re-entry and the the hug it was so helpful it didn't keep the marriage together but it gave us some better times um it that the hug was supposed to be long enough that you could sort of co-regulate nervous systems and let some of that stress drop away so it was a very succinct small ritual but it was super helpful i love that that's beautiful and it is and that is invoke so that meets the ritual box thing which is you're invoking something bigger you're invoking the marriage you're invoking mm, mm. the love <laughs> you're invoking the commitment in a micro action that then allows it to be kind of nailed in in a way that is yeah i love that that's beautiful so micro rituals are really helpful to make it less overwhelming I'm going to give you one that's a bit more elaborate. Um, so this is not one I made up. This is one I experienced as a participant, but I've been doing it ever since. This is called the Dinner for the Dead, and it is brilliant, and I highly recommend it. So basically, either on Halloween or the 1st of November, in many different cultures, that's when they believe that the veils between the worlds of the living and the dead are at their thinnest. So this is a ritual that was created by 
a woman called Rachel Rose Reed, who is like a Jewish version of me. She takes Jewish rituals and gets creative with them. And a Mexican performance artist called Pablo Villares. And they combined the Jewish thing and the Mexican thing to make this dinner for the dead. And here's what you do. You have a dinner party where everybody brings a dead person. And there has to be a dead person that they knew in real life and that they love. And they bring one plate of that person's signature dish. Okay, So you're not bringing a whole like portions for 10 people. You're bringing one plate's worth of this person's food. And the way you do it is this. You lay an empty table. So you have cutlery and crockery and flowers and candles, but no food, tablecloth or whatever. And then you make an altar, which can be as simple as a couple of boxes stacked on top of each other, covered with a cloth with a couple of candles and some flowers. And then you open proceedings, whoever's hosting or whoever's invited to sort of play the role that I might play kind of, a, you know, a host, not necessarily the ones with the bricks and mortar, but the host of the evening opens it by saying, everybody who's here has been through the death of a loved one. And so therefore we all know that that is not a straightforward thing and any emotions can come up. It could be humor, rage, naughtiness, grief, just nothing, like anything can happen. So everybody is going to be super respectful of everybody else's emotional landscape and everyone's going to respect deep listening and active listening. So so no one's going to jump on somebody else's story, basically. And then what happens is you go, who's first? And somebody goes, okay, I'll go first. I'm going to talk about my great aunt Matilda. So, And then what happens is somebody says, okay, so great aunt Matilda, well, now she was one. She was a da-da-da-da-da-da. And you start hearing all about great aunt Matilda, not just her death, but her childhood, her life, her her gifts, her shadows, her good and her bad stuff. And while you're hearing about, about great aunt Matilda, you're passing around this one plate of great aunt Matilda's favorite meal. So you're having a spoonful of cherry trifle or oh God. <laughs> kippers or whatever. And you're just having one taste of it. And you're also having a sip of her signature drink. So you're having a little bit of Dubonnet with a twist. I'm being a bit unfair to Matilda, but anyway, there we are. And you're having you're having quite a weird combo, and you're and you're also having seeing a photograph of Great Aunt Matilda. Don't have a photograph; you do a drawing of them or a painting. So you're hearing her life, you're eating her food, you're drinking her drink. You can ask questions about Great Aunt Matilda, but you can't jump in and go, "Hang on, my Great Aunt Madeline went to that school." That's not that's not okay. You're staying with one person's story. It's Matilda's time, yes. Matilda's yeah. time until. Yeah. Uh. It's done. And there's no time limit. So usually it's about between 20 and 40 minutes, depends on the thing, but it could be five, it could be an hour, but you let them speak for as long as they need to. You let them say whatever they need to. When they're done, they, and you've eaten your trifle and you've had your sherry, you take the photograph, the person takes the photograph of great aunt Matilda, puts it on the altar, lights a candle, everyone raises a toast, cleans your plate, right? Okay. Who's next? And you go, okay, well, and then you have a completely different person. And a very, di- you have a very peculiar meal. <laughs> like you go, right. I'm going to have some, you know, I'm going to have some gherkins and then I'm going to have some Battenberg cake and then I'm going to have <laughs> a Frey Bentos pie and then I'm going to have a roast chicken and then I'm going to have, like, it's quite disgusting. But you have it's this a wild really, ride. Yeah. It's a wild ride. And by the yeah. end of the night, the altar is absolutely full of these faces and you're 
you're feeling like you've met them all and they've all been honored. And it's when I've done it, I've done it with people who don't know each other. And you get the most incredibly intimate conversation, but you never get to find out what they do for a living or where they live or if they have kids or anything. You just know about their grief for their mum or their first boyfriend or their grandmother. And you end up with this absolutely extraordinary thing. And all the dead feel vividly present. And it's so beautiful. And at the end of the night, you, you know, you blow out the candles and you put away the crockery and it's done. But you feel they feel like they're there. I think that's beautiful and and obviously creates a very heart-centered gathering with these are always the best dinner parties. And the other (laughs) thing is you can do it for an anniversary of a death where it's all about one person. So you don't have to only Mm. do it at those times. So if it's the anniversary of a death or indeed a birthday of the dead person, it's another. So we have on on mum's birthday, we call it mum mass. So we have mum mass. And on her death day, we call it mumster, as in Easter. So... I mean, but she was a celebrator, so you have to ritualize absolutely everything. But yeah, mum mass is, um, my sister and I give each other presents and we, I usually make something that was mum-ish. Um, we get together and do something mum-like. One of the things I love about your story, I mean, I think one of my main takeaways from today is this sort of the legacy of celebration, you know, that, that she was obviously a great celebrator and you are too. I mean, it doesn't was- stop there, does it? It doesn't. And I was really feeling that on Saturday, I was running a workshop, which was for a group of women who were going through a year long program. And over the course of the year, we're doing lots of things in real life together as a group's cohort of six, and uh, but also separately. And each one of them goes through this one to one journey with me as well. Plus, we meet in VR. But on Saturday, our workshop was sneaking around doing random acts of covert kindness and beauty. And it was so fun. Like, I basically have a box with like chalk and luggage tags and googly eyes and candles and and we just sneak around and as we were doing it like defacing thing like one of them's a lawyer she's like I don't know if I'm comfortable with this <laughs> like, it was slightly illegal activity it's just so much fun it's sort of it changes one of the things is you write a love letter to a stranger and you take it with you and as soon as you've got a love letter to a stranger in your hand the city becomes a very different place. So you very... take it with you and then you find a stranger and you give them the love letter? No, 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 no. You hide it somewhere that it can be found. Oh, and it's addressed to you who have found this uh, the most yeah, 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 blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. No, you don't yeah. give it to a stranger because that could be a I bit see. weird and invasive. No, you tuck it in between uh, a, true, in a yeah. box in a supermarket. You don't put it through anybody's letterbox either because that could also yeah. cause all sorts of marital strife. <laughs> you, right. you leave it somewhere any, yeah. Yeah. You leave it where, yeah. some, where anybody could find it. So in the bathroom mm. of a pub or in a bus or in a supermarket tucked between the groceries, you know. But as soon as you've written it, you, you feel like you're looking at the world in a different way. You're looking at places to spread a little bit of love. And as soon as you have permission and a bit of chalk and some googly eyes and a luggage tag, you suddenly see city streets as this kind of, this playground playground that's right playground yeah is that is that what this so so okay so it's it's called the path you're taking these six women through a year-long adventure is it switching on the child eyes what no that's just one piece that's one day of of seven days it's okay what it's it's seven days over the course of the year plus one residential weekend plus they each get an individuated 12-hour journey with me over the course of the time 
And we have quite a lot of peer coaching and stuff in between and seasonal check-ins and various other things. It's generally what I'm finding, and this is a self-selecting group, it's women who are at some kind of transition point in their lives. And they are all in this cohort, extraordinary examples of bridging the worlds of quite alternative spirituality and fully hardcore professional jobs. So like people who are senior professionals, like, you know, a senior lawyer in a merchant bank, a surge, a pediatric plastic surgeon, a, you know, a executive coach, a sort of business innovation lead for a big organization. But all of them independently were like, I'm a shaman or like I've done loads of tantra or like yeah. I'm going to be a five rhythms teacher. So they, they're, they're all doing this thing where in their jobs, they're having to be in this very pressured masculine environment mm-hmm. and in their heart and their soul, they're longing for sisterhood and creativity and nourishment and expansion. And so it's those people who are both, but at quite a high level, they're not beginners in either side. So I can run with them and do quite intense, crazy shit with them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they're like, come on, bring it. Like one of one of them said to me, I don't like my coaches too vanilla. <laughs> You're about right for me. I'm like, thanks. You know, like I don't get them to do traditional stuff. I don't get them just to kind of work with their own existing map. I will get them to have experiences that will shift them in some way, like sneaking around the streets of London reverse pickpocketing strangers with love notes. Well, yeah, I mean, you're switching on major possibility there. And, um, and, and also joy is very empowering. And I think that, yes, that's, that's a really um, beautiful force for, for transformation that hopefully can be brought back into these very kind of masculine workplaces. But that's the thing, like they're breaking apart a little bit, the masculine places, and what they need is the empowerment. I know I'm being a little binary here, but they need the kind of things that go with the empowered feminine, which include deep listening, empathetic expression, collaboration, innovative threading together of different ways of being systemic, understanding, um, yes, long-term vision, sisterhood, soulful, emotional intelligence, vulnerability, honesty, like all of those things. Amen. Oh, yes. Yes. Well, that's right. That's right. So some of this is just sort of, yeah, it's, it's the, the evocation of these qualities and these experiences and the, the validation, right. And the, the resourcing, it's the resourcing. I think so much of this is about sort of this, this energetic stripping down of what we're calling the feminine. We could call the, you know, the playful, the other eyes, whatever you want to call it. And it needs to be reduced and and rejoiced and I'm so so happy that you're doing this work to you. I mean it's, I love it's it. very very after my own heart and um wow okay so let's let's end I know we've gone over time I'm sorry to keep you so yeah. long couldn't resist couldn't resist uh, just tell me um you know your hope for the future of this work. Oh okay I'm suddenly even this summer something has shifted in that there is a field now where this work is becoming more prevalent. I'm no longer the only person doing this. And I feel like increasingly sacred experience itself is becoming recognized as something which we need outside of the usual parameters of, of, of say, religion. 
And I think the reclaiming of wonder, the reclaiming of the sacred, the reclaiming of heart intelligence as well as head is bound up in this other approach to being alive. And my hope is being borne out by suddenly finding myself. I mean, since I saw you, I was at something called the College of Extraordinary Experiences, which is this absolutely bonkers, brilliant five-day experience in a 13th century castle in Poland. And I was a professor and I got everybody to design their own funeral. Quite intense. (laughs) (laughs) Suddenly, you know, but everybody there is 125 people from all kinds of organizations and individuals and artists and weirdos. They're all doing this stuff in their own ways. They're all in this reclaiming of this other kind of medium. And my hope is that, just to sound very kind of boring about it, there has been this exponential growth in what's called the experience economy over the last 20 years. So where economically people used to value, for example, an album, but now they value a Beyonce concert ticket way above the thing that they get to keep. Experience has now ratcheted way up. And the next level from that is being described as the transformation economy. So you go from physical stuff to experiences to experiences that shift. And that feels to me like what the world is. We need all sorts of things. And I don't think that it's necessarily just about our own personal edification or elevation. I also, my hope is also that there's a move to bring this work in the, into areas that are to do with resourcing environmental activism, um, resourcing social justice, people resourcing the world of, that's about to be hit by billions of climate refugees. Like how do we access that which is universal and human to us all and therefore be more welcoming to those who are in pain and struggle rather than delineate. So I feel like there's something deep about this that is awakening a skill set about not only acknowledging, but honoring that which is universal to all humans. And ritual has been around as long as we have, as far as we know. And the thought of it turning into something that becomes a hand across the precipice that allows us to connect with love to people who we can share our lives with or understand better or connect with through these universal principles that to me feels a really important application of this that's the bigger one the the smaller one is i want to set up a physical place i want i think it's a monastery for experienced designers that's how somebody fed it back to me i think i don't know what it is yet i don't know what country it's in but i want to have a physical location that is a sanctuary for people and for this kind of work to be explored as an art form. And that's my mission at the moment. And so it is. And so it is. (laughs) 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 It's going to happen. I can't wait to see it. Of course, of course. Um, I'm coming. Oh, yeah, definitely. The naughty monastery. The naughty monastery. Oh, my God. Yes. (laughs) Sorry. That's That's my branch. Okay. You, you're Jane. amazing. Thank oh, you, thank you. My too. heart has been so open throughout this conversation, such and a um, such a joy. What a what a great kickoff for the week. So, so much love. <laughs> okay, so much love. <laughs>